Hi, and welcome to Doing the Opposite Business Disruptors, the podcast where you get to meet leaders who have swum against the tide, thrown out the rule book, and changed the way their sector does business. I'm Jeff Dewing, and I'm the founder and CEO of CloudFM, a business where we thrive on taking risk so our clients don't have to. Today, you're going to meet Manly Hopkinson. Manly is an ex-naval officer, Hong Kong police officer, Arctic explorer, and now an inspirational speaker. Manly has traveled all over the world with the Navy, and more importantly, he also ran the biggest yacht race in the world, the BT Challenge, where if you look at some of the stuff that he shows on YouTube, the seas and the challenge that that brought alone has created an environment of living like you wouldn't believe. An inspirational story, a man that has no fear other than to enjoy the joy of life. So, hi, Manly, and thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today. I'm absolutely fascinated about the subject matter we're going to be talking about, and more importantly, some of those things where we're perhaps going to be a little bit potentially controversial to some, with a view to saying there's always a a different way or a better way. So, thanks again for joining me, and um, I'd like, if you wouldn't mind, perhaps just set the scene and give us a little bit of background on, on Manly. Yeah, Jeff, it's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me to start with. Um, yeah, doing things the awkward way or the different ways basically sums up my life. Um, dodgy background. Um, I won't give you a chronology because if I do that, you'll work out I basically can't keep a job for very long. But I was in, <laughs> I was in the Navy, uh, in the Royal Navy, uh, and then I actually was going to transfer to the Royal Marines, but ended up in the Royal Hong Kong Marine Police instead. So I was out in Hong Kong um, a number of years ago now, that was the mid-80s, um, uh, then I had a boat building business out there, ended up rejoining the Navy for the first Gulf War, left the Navy the second time in 93, became a professional sailor and skippered dodgy boats, beautiful boats all over the world, crossing oceans and, and uh, staying afloat mostly. And that culminated in me skippering in a race around the world called the world's toughest yacht race, which is the BT Global Challenge. That was a complete game changer in my life, as you can imagine. In fact, that's really what got me going in the place I am now, um, which is uh, as, a, as a speaker and a, a consultant on leadership and transformation and performance. Also did a race to the, the Magnetic North Pole, uh, some cracking lessons from that too, as you can imagine. Uh, but uh, that, that was actually specifically around trying to set a, uh, leave a marker, if you like, in the ice and, and, and put in a performance, a winning performance. And then over the years, I've had the joy and pleasure of meeting people like yourself and all sorts of exciting people and thought leaders and business leaders and community leaders and just normal, incredible folk all over the world and all the time learning from them. And my whole bag now is around the concept of compassionate leadership. I've got a book out there, second edition came out last year. Uh, and uh, my online, my whole Compassionate Leadership Academy we launched in 2019 as well. So, so yeah, that, that's me in a nutshell, Jeff. Wow. So when you sort of lay on your bed on chosen evenings and looking up, you're not going to sit and say, I've had a boring life, are you? <laughs> I think, <laughs> I think one, one of the important thing is that when you draw your last breath and you, you let the air go over your vocal cords for the very last time, you've got to say that was fun. You've got to say you filled it full, haven't you? 
honestly, and it's um, it's fantastic. So, listen, before we get into perhaps um, one or two stories that brings this whole purpose of this podcast to life, there's one thing I just wanted to pick up on, which is something you've said. And, and if you go into our office in our reception, on the wall, there are the biggest words you can imagine. And it says, there is no such thing as work-life balance. There is only life. And of course, I've read that that's a viewpoint you share as well. And it's ironic, isn't it, that people that honestly go through life because they are, I don't know, educated, if that's the right word, um, that that this is the buzzword. We need to, when we're upset, we need to talk about work-life balance. But in actual fact, it's just life. And it's about how you choose to manage your life um, and where those barriers occur is, is in your control. Totally right, Jeff. I, I just call it life balance. You know, forget about the work bit. Obviously, work is part of life. We have to earn our way. We have to add value to society. We can't just sponge off it. Um, and so it's all the balance you have. And, and I, I actually was running a whole session down in, in South Africa just last week about helping people find their sense of purpose. And I look at it in three areas. And I do help people distinguish between work their community, their friends and families, and themselves. Because the danger is we forget about that as well. We actually don't look after ourselves. If you ask somebody, oh, you know, who are you? They'll describe their job or their role, as opposed to, well, who am I? I'm, I'm Manly. I'm Jeff. I'm, you know, this is passionate to me. These are my values. These are my beliefs. And I think we've forgotten to actually really look in the mirror and deeply see who we are. And as you say, you know, words on the wall in the offices are pretty meaningless, really. They've got to come off the wall. They've got to come into your heart, into your belief system, into your everyday action. Uh, and, and then it's got to be real, isn't it? And I find it really sad when I see people who just so totally separate the work and themselves because, you know, in the average week, you're generally in work five days out of seven. And isn't that sad if the work isn't you? isn't the real you. It's just something you're pretending to be. And I think that that is massively draining. So all my encouragement is to people to practice a lovely expression from Noel Coward. I think it was, who said, be yourself, everyone else is taken. And I love that as an expression. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, and again, that's, it's music to my ears because I guess, you know, this is something that you've been clearly focused on for, for some time yet. And I'm using COVID as, not something that changed my view of the world, but COVID accelerated the outcome of my views. And I think one of the things that is interesting, and you've used a few terms in in some of the things you've written, but I reference Ikigai, which brings us back to what is your sense of purpose. And Ikigai being something similar to what you talked about in Buddhism, but it's about the meaning of life. You know, what does it mean to any of us? And none of us stop and ask that question. We just amble from stone to stone, from job to job, seeking what we think will make us happy, which as you've referenced, you know, it's not the fancy car. It's not the fancy house. It never has been, never will be. They are just symptoms and, and sticky plasters to then realize that's not what you wanted at all, but you didn't know it until you knew it. And the way I help bring that home to people, that everyone generally knows about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. That, you know, there's the core needs at the bottom. This whole concept of self-actualization sits at the top. And the way I say to them, it's not a big house on the top of the pyramid. It's you. Yep. you know, the, the big house or the smart car isn't in the pyramid at all. It's not represented there in one single bit. And, and the danger is, the, 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 if you like, the system and even many of the speakers are out there, motivational speakers, say, you know, put a picture of a Ferrari on the wall and that's your purpose. No, it's not. That's your trap. That is your trap. It's your distraction. Yeah. Totally. There's nothing wrong with enjoying the spoils. There's a lovely expression saying, 
You have no right to the spoils. You just have a right to the action. What comes from it will come from it. And this is the whole philosophy, but it's all about the journey, not the destination. And I think if you think about life, right? The destination of life is death. It doesn't sound like fun to me. It might be. I don't know. It doesn't sound like it. So let's focus on the journey. Let's worry less about where it's off to, where it's heading, and just live in the moment and be present. Of course, yeah. So one of the realities is that the only real moment in our life is now. It's you and me chatting here now, Jeff. Sorry, sorry about that, mate. This is, the only, <laughs> this is the only real thing you've got. And likewise, if people are listening to this, this is the only real moment as well, because what's gone, gone. It's, it's history. What hasn't happened yet hasn't happened by definition. But we forget to be present. Now, we're on our phones. We worry about the past. We get concerned about what might happen. We forget to just be. I think that's critical. And I think there's a few things that I've learned in the journey because I have a slightly different view that the destination isn't death. The destination is fulfillment and then comes death because that's inevitable. And the question is, how do you establish fulfillment? And that isn't necessarily contentment. It's not even happiness. It's fulfillment. You know, when do you wake up every day feeling glad to be alive and, and, and so on and so on? And it's and it's never about money. Uh, but of course, we need money to live and to eat. That goes without saying. But if you then come back and you ask people, and this is the bit I've learned most, because again, I'll have strong values, and someone will say to me, okay, who's Jeff? And I'll tell them. And they'll say, oh, well, I'm, you know, I'm Stephen, and I'm nothing like that. I don't believe in any of those things. My job used to be, I believed, to convince Stephen that he was wrong and I was right. Okay. Um, whereas now there's that maturity that says, no, learn from Stephen, learn the nuggets, learn the bits that perhaps you've missed, and accept people are different because that is the way the world is. And it's, it's been a fascinating journey when you change that mindset that it's not about convincing people to think differently. It's about putting your, your story forward, your view forward. And if that influences somebody, then great. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But in the meantime, it's not about what you can do. It's about what you can learn from the conversations you're having. Yeah, and there's a lovely thing about don't try and change the universe, change yourself. Exactly, absolutely, yeah. Stephen may be quite content uh, on, on his journey, or, or he may not, in which case, by sharing our story, potentially we can help him on the journey that he should be on. And I think this is the thing, it's dropping judgment. Of course, yeah. And I, I, but again, it's it's fascinating just, and this is where I get fascinated by people. Um, I've learned, it's taken a few years, and it's taken a bit of maturity and a bit of coaching from from my peers, but... I've learned that there isn't a right and a wrong. There's only there's only your approach and your view of the world. And and you and the only thing I've learned, well, the big the biggest thing I've learned is just to listen. To listen to everybody has got a story. Everybody has got an incredible story. Even the ones that don't think they've got a story have got a story. And when you are curious and fascinated, it's amazing how relationships even develop. But more importantly, how much knowledge you gain just from that simplistic conversation. Totally. And that, that's why my, over the years, my whole philosophy has moved into the principle of compassion. And, and if I quickly explain, I, I use the Dalai Lama's definition of compassion, because there's lots of rot out there that you know, compassion is all about trauma and suffering and stuff. I disagree. And, and, and I'd say the Dalai Lama may well be a bit of an expert on it, spent his whole life meditating on it. And he says that if empathy is to understand, then compassion is to work with that knowledge with positive intent. And that, I think, is really exciting. So basically, Jeff, is understanding with positive action, which comes down to your first point there. The first thing you've got to do is shut up and listen. And if we shut up and listen, then and only then can we even start to try to understand. And then once you start to understand, then we've got an option. We've got an option to act positively or to act from a different, different aspect. But 
Now, everything I, I talk about is if we can have a greater sense of compassion in the world, a greater sense of people dropping judgment, dropping bias, being prepared to listen and understand, to then act positively, and as I say, to take away that judgment of what we hear. Now, forget about just leadership. But that, if we did that, they even did it to the planet. Let's understand and then be positive. Now, let's stop beating it up. It's our only survival mechanism. Yeah, I was doing some astronomical maths the other day, counting all the number of habitable planets within easy reach. And I just caught one, I'm afraid. That's the one we're on. So compassion is a bigger principle to me. And, and then once you start it, it's a whole philosophy, which, which means you widen your peripheral vision. You even drive differently, Jeff. You know, you actually let people in. You see someone trying to cross the road. Your whole attitude approaches. And you know what? It makes you feel bloody good because you think, I've just let that person in. I've made their journey better. And you smile inwardly. And we forget about that. We get so trapped up on our own journey that we forget about other people's journey. And I think that's why, you know, if we can spread the principle of this, you know, drop in judgment or of being compassionate or looking out, not just your fellow humankind, but fellow sentient beings on the planet and think, come on, let me be good to it. Let me understand it. And then let me be good with what I understand. And it starts with you. Of course, it it always does. And I think what, what we're back to every action creates a reaction, right? Yeah, you know, I love a couple of these little formulas that are great to, to express a, a, a meaning and stuff where um, you've got um, E plus R equals O. So an event occurs, whatever that event is, your response will dictate the outcome. So what outcomes do you want and then formulate your response? Because essentially, if you respond in a, an aggressive way, you'll get an aggressive outcome. Funny, right? If you respond in a compassionate way, you'll get a compassionate outcome. It's all about how you make people feel in the moment. And another question that I'd like to ask, if you talk to people genuinely, whether it be the barman in the bar or or the local CEO or even the local councillor or any sort of group of people, you say, you know, you've got your life, you've got your work, you know, what, what is it, what is it? you're doing and they're saying well I'm, I'm i'm earning a good salary i'm looking to get promoted i'm looking to very few people would say i'm here to serve the community i'm here to serve other people that's the reason i'm here yeah and you mentioned the little covid effect earlier just then jeff that that one of the things it has enabled much of society to do is to stop and reflect uh, and we've seen the impact of that now that that people had a moment of pause uh, and some have forgotten it, just moved straight back in. But many have thought, actually, no, I, I don't want to be like that. I, I do want a greater sense of meaning. I, I do want a greater sense of purpose. I, I want to feel valued. I want to add value. And, and there's definitely a, a shift uh, that happened in many areas of society of this, this need and recognition that it isn't just about my salary. It's not just about the job or whatever it may be. Actually, uh, I, I feel I want to add value. I want to be valued. I want to feel good. And I think one of the biggest tragedies or the waste of energies is the human energy. There are so many people that wake up on a Monday morning and they have a knot in their stomach as if you're a kid and forgotten to do your homework before school. And you think, yeah. oh, how awful is that? And that's leadership. That's leadership, Jeff, because it's the leaders that create that environment. And I, I was just writing a piece today for a, a magazine and just talking about surely the, the outcome of leadership is meant to be commitment. That's the purpose, isn't it? That, that if we can gain commitment, then the rest happens. Um, we've got resilience, you've got ownership, you have um, engagement, you have performance, and, and you have happiness, you have all these things. If our job is to gain commitment, then how do we do that? Understanding with positive action. The first thing we do as a leader, instead of bursting into a room and start speaking, is to burst into a room and shut up. 
<laughs> yeah, be the last person in the room to speak because that way you've then heard everybody else's view. So, and again, it's all it's all it's all leadership stuff that is is absolutely right and proper. And I, but it is about you know those from you know the baby boomers, if you like, and and those that have been educated that command control is the way forward with strength and and, and action and so on. And, and those days for me are just dead and buried. They're gone. The key now is that one of the things I learned in COVID where our business suffered like most businesses did, where there was incredible uncertainty, uncertainty of survival, let alone anything else. And I'll never forget my exec team said to me on, on our first emergency call, right, Jeff, you're the CEO. We've got this problem. We've just lost um, 95% of our revenues just falling off a cliff and we've got 400 mouths to feed. Um, what are we going to do? And for the first time in my entire career, I said, I've got no idea. I'm absolutely on the floor. Um, I don't know where to turn. I can't sleep. I can't this. And that's the first time without purpose. I didn't do it on purpose. It was a, it was an honest reaction. I showed in total and utter vulnerability. Yeah. And the moment after that call, um, I had a text message from my one of my exec members saying, Jeff, take a couple of days away. Get your, get your head together. We'll do all the work we've talked about. Anyway, the point that behind the story is, without going into the detail, is every one of my exec team stepped up 17 levels Yeah, because they knew I needed help. You're right. And, and that, that element of, of saying I don't know is absolutely critical. I find one of the biggest pressures leaders put themselves under is that they set an expectation that they have to have all the answers for everything, which is absolutely crazy because you've only had one life. Because in this life, I don't know if other lives are. But but the but the point is, you know, the brilliance of your business isn't you; it's your whole exec team, it's the whole people beneath them, it's the whole ideas coming up from the four hundred people, it's the feedback from your customers, from your suppliers, from your partners, and and where leaders go wrong is they think they've got to have the idea, and I think that puts them under incredible pressure. Whereas if a leader can say, "Look, I don't know, um, I'm not here for the idea, but I tell you what, between us, I bet we'll get there." then it's a different field, isn't it? You're suddenly in a different space, and that's the excitement. And saying I don't know is a, is a demonstration by default of vulnerability, right? And vulnerability brings out the best in people around you. And I think, whereas when you've got this sort of stiff upper lip, you're also, and if you're, if you're giving the answers all the time, you're, you're, you're removing accountability from anybody because it was your answer. Yeah, <laughs> and if you're, if you're giving the answers, it's from one perspective and then who's learning. There's no sense of collective brilliance or difference either, which is a key thing. So, and even this principle of you know, the command and control bit, what we perceive it as, is fundamentally flawed in the context that it is just a flow in one direction as opposed to a dialogue. Where a dialogue is we, we both learn. And so, you know, that's the principle of it. And it's interesting even from, because obviously my background is a military background, uh, and uh, I learned so much leadership. And there's one of the things you forget about at the time that now you're 18 or 19 and leadership is on the agenda, on the table every single day. And you're trained, you're exposed, you're tested, you're given brutal feedback, um, you're, you know, you're thrown in. But people think that military leadership is all about shouting and command and control, but it isn't. Yeah. And even Nelson was ahead of the day over 200 years ago because my first ship was an aircraft carrier. I was a weapons section officer. I had one thin strike in my shoulder as a sub-lieutenant. I was responsible for 178 sailors. Some of them have been in the Navy longer than they've been alive. I didn't know their job. 
And I didn't need to know their job. When leaders realize that, you don't need to know everything. You're not there to tell people what to do. You're there to gain their commitment, muster their energy, keep it all in the right direction, make sure it aligns to the bigger picture and inspire them and really get them firing. Then it's a different thing. Then it actually is quite fun. Of course. And then what you do is it's not only fun and inspiring, it, it just takes you to a whole new level. It's that fantastic book, Covey, of Turn the Ship Around, when it's, you know, when he, when he went in exactly with that attitude. You know, I'm the captain, but I haven't got a fraction of the knowledge that you have on those nuclear um, uh, those nuclear shafts that we're using or the nuclear reactor. You do. Um, I'm not going to tell you what to do. How can I tell you what to do? You know much, far better than I do. So all you're going to do is let me know what you're intending to do, just so I'm aware. Um, and he turned the worst performing submarine into the best performing submarine because he empowered the people with the knowledge they had and they felt they was making a difference. And suddenly these people give you a 1,000% more. Because what we've got is their commitment, because they know that the captain has got their back. The captain is there to look after them. That's precisely what he said. My role is to enable you to be brilliant. How do you feel when someone tells you that? You feel like a million dollars, don't you? Of course it is. And that's, and that's why when people talk about salary and bonus and, uh, and time off and stuff, you know, one of the things that we've learned, and I've learned over the years of, of listening to people as well, is that acknowledgement and praise perhaps probably the wrong word i mean praise comes into it but people just being acknowledged for what they're doing ignites them more than a pay increase will yeah totally. and especially if it's done in the right way and, and and repetitively enough because you give somebody a pay rise they're they're elated for the next 24 hours they've forgotten about it 48 hours later yeah because it's all gone yeah and it just moves you into another tax bracket and this is the difference between a transaction if you like and then this principle compliance and commitment we've we've created a transaction if you do that and i'll give you this and i I did a lot of research when i was working with a number of the police forces in the uk and overseas on power and influence there's some brilliant stuff from a couple of social scientists in the 60s called french and raven Uh, and i I write about it in my book because it's so profound and a couple of things that we need to understand is that you can only influence people if they let you. In other words, if I want to influence you, Jeff, you've got to let me. You've got to give, you have to give me the power base to, to, to influence you as opposed to me having it. And my rank or position, I might be the CEO, is not a base in its own right. But the potential to reward and coerce is. Do that, Jeff, and I'll pay you. Do that, Jeff, and I'll give you a Chinese burn. And, you know, and, and all it does is create a compliance. We've created a whole society based based on compliance. Even heaven and hell, if you think about it, is a compliant mechanism. Do that and you go to heaven, and do that and you go to hell, as opposed to you shouldn't be doing that anyway. Uh, and, and so what we need to do as leaders, when we look at the whole societies that we serve, not just the businesses and industries and the people, is let's forget about creating a transaction. Even as a parent with, with teenagers, you know, you get to the stage where you, they say, well, if you do that, you can't go out. Or if you do that, I'll give you extra pocket money. And it's just bribery and it's just compliance. Whereas if we can tap into people's sense of self-worth, if we can shut up and listen, make them feel valued, if I genuinely have your best interest at heart, we've moved away from compliance and we can use the reward and coercion bit, but that's not the important part. The important part is you'll have a belief in me that I've got your best interest. And then that gives us a different relationship. It gives us a different ability to influence each other. It gives a different level of trust and bonding and understanding. So the moment when you stand up in front of your team and say, guys, I haven't got the singles idea, they get it and they know where it's come from. And they're there to support you and back you, which is the whole thing. And when you're working with people, and you, you just mentioned children there, and of course we're all, none of us are trained to be parents. We all do what we think is right and we measure it on how we were treated, I guess. 
And the one thing that we all do, of, of, and uh, we've all learned, is one, it's one of the things I refer to in, in my book, and that is that we're trying to protect our kids, right? So we say to them, no, you can't do that. If you do do that, then you're going to be grounded because that was the wrong thing to do. So on and, so on. and what we're actually frightened of, we're frightened of them being hurt. We're frightened of them failing. We're frightened of them getting it wrong. We're frightened of all these things. And we say to them, when they're first riding their bike um, and you've taken the stabilizers off, say, right now, be very, very careful because if you fall off or if you're, if you're not careful, you'll fall off and you'll hurt yourself. And we don't want you to hurt you. The reality is we have to learn very quickly that they will not, learn that lesson until they fall off right they have to fall off totally and we're back to the issue when we're talking about kids or people around us you have to have this environment where failure is a positive word and not a negative word failure is learning right it always was when you were growing up so for a kid to grow up you think about how they learn how they learn to walk how they learn to speak how they learn to even go to the toilet everything is experimentation and everything starts with failure and failure and failure and failure until they get it. When we get older, I've worked this out this way through all the, the research and stuff we've done. It isn't a fear of failure per se. It's a fear of judgment of failure. When we're about eight years old, it's the first time we start realizing we're being judged and other people looking at us and setting an expectation. And that's when that fear starts to creep in. Up to that point, a child has no fear of failure at all. Uh, and it comes as an adult construct. And then you think about what we do at school. When you pass your exams or you fail, you go down a grade, you go to class, you know, you're a dunce, you're the back of the classroom, you're, you're the ones who get all the A's are brought to the front in the assembly and are, are lauded. And then you think what happens in work? You have two teams working really hard on two different projects. One gets it over the line, the other one doesn't. What do we do? We celebrate the one that got over the line. But which team did we learn most from? Well, we actually learned most from the team that failed. Which team worked harder? I reckon these guys did, but we ignored them. And the danger of that is that, well, aren't they going to try again? What happens the next time? And, and how do we encourage them? So it's all right, please try again. Well, I'm not going to because last time I didn't get it and you beat me up. And, and even in business, everything we do, we've, we forget about the need to recognize the effort and intent and the learning. And as a leader, did we set them up to fail? If they failed, what have, what have I done to create the environment which enabled failure to happen? Was it not enough time, not enough resources, not enough support, not enough, what was it? But as opposed to beating the team up or beating the individual, we should thank them and say, look, brilliant learning. And the danger of success is we get complacent and arrogant. And the danger of failure is that we get despondent and stop trying. Whereas actually what we should do is celebrate both, recognize both, learn from both, and be humble enough to recognize that all just lessons. That's all part of the journey. It's all knowledge. Yeah, and maybe I was successful because, you know, all the ships are rising because the tide was coming in. And so maybe it wasn't my success at all. And, and <laughs> you know, we, I learned this a lot. We had a whole load of my race around the world. We, you know, we didn't do well at times, and we did very well at other times. And, and the stories around it were, and there's a lovely video. We, I was arriving into Boston, and we just raced across the Atlantic Ocean, and we were the last ones in. But you didn't see a despondent team. You saw a team celebrating. And that was in the documentary. This team was on fire. We just crossed an ocean. They were amazing. <laughs> and our turnaround was, compared to the other teams in the race, we are now the most experienced team in the race because we've been out in the water longer than anybody else. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> it's about looking at the positives, too, and always thinking that way. Uh, and then and, and recognizing, okay, so, so that wasn't the result we wanted. What do we learn? What do we take away? What do we do? Let's celebrate effort and intent, celebrate all the things we did well, and then move on. 
And I think that's why I think, you know, the focus in the next generation and beyond is not trying to focus on educating on getting things right first time and, and diligent. It should be educating on how to have the right mindset, right? Giving people the freedom of mindset. And the one thing we also don't do, which is another saying I love from Henry Ford, is thinking is very difficult, which is why so few choose to do it. And having the time to reflect. And one of the things, again, that I was lucky enough, and it's all by chance, not because of my sense of understanding or belief, it was that during COVID, I was lucky enough to be stuck in Portugal. Every single night at five o'clock, I would sit on my balcony, I could see the sea, and I'd reflect for two hours, watch the sun go down. Yeah. And I didn't have to, I didn't have a, a purpose, like, I didn't have to solve problems necessarily, but I solved a thousand problems because I actually sat and reflected stuff we don't afford ourselves the time to do because we're just going from pillar to pillar to pillar to pillar and we're not stopping and thinking. We're not stopping and not, we're not even stopping and not thinking. I mean, the example about it saying thinking is hard. So what's two plus two? Four. What's 119 divided by 70? Um, no idea. Without sitting there and thinking about it, yeah. So two things happened here, which just demonstrate your point. And I use this a lot to help people understand about how we follow patterns of behavior, how we actually don't think we're following hard wire. Two plus two is beaten into your subconscious. As a young kid, you're doing your times tables. It was a chant. It was a song almost, wasn't it? And your amygdala, which is this little filter in your brain, if you read the book called The Chimp Paradox, with Professor Stephen Peters, which is a brilliant book. That, that's that's that, that's your chimp. Um, that is thinking, you know, do I know it? Is it new or is it a threat? And it's two plus two. It heard it. Yeah, I got that one. And it just picked it up, threw it into your conscious, and you shared it. Yeah. Yeah. The 119 divided by 17 isn't in your subconscious. It's not beaten into you as a pattern as a kid unless you had a particular background. The answer is actually seven. So what happened was your amygdala goes, do I know it? No, I don't. Right, immediate threat. I don't know it. Conscious brain, get involved. Conscious brain thought, Oh, what? 119 divided by 17. Well, that's roughly, and, and, and it took effort and intent to do it. And there was a concern. So your amygdala's now firing off saying, actually, what if I get it wrong? You know, is Mandy trying to make me look stupid? Or it sounds stupid, whatever it is. This happens to us all the time. And so it, for people over about 35 years old, the danger is you spend 95% of every day just going through subconscious patterns of behavior. And this is one of the things we started our conversation you know, about people just getting into a trap and not consciously making a difference. Now, there's a brilliant book, which I'm sure you know, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, uh, who was a Holocaust survivor. And he talks about the fact that the only thing they couldn't take away from him was him. And that and we spoke earlier about, you know, there's an event to reaction as outcome. And his premise is that between stimulus and response, if we make a gap and we make it a conscious gap, then we have a choice of our response. If there's no gap, we have no choice. And again, we're back to you um, yeah, on, the, on the same subject where you talked about the Ferrari on the wall. You know, the, the other prisoners of wars were sitting there saying, we'll be out by Christmas. And then Christmas came and went and they weren't. We'll be out by Easter. Easter came and weren't. And then the following Christmas, we'll be out by Christmas. Christmas came and they all died of a broken heart. Um, whereas the guy said, I've got no idea when I'll get out, but I know I'll get out. So he managed his own emotional intent. Yeah, And I'll be me. Because that's the only thing they can't take away is who I am. Uh, no, it's a really powerful stuff, isn't it? it really is. It's a huge subject, and you can go into all the minutiae and detail about the different things you can and can't do, but the reality comes back to the same thing. When we was in COVID, air quality rose 80%, and the noise of birds increased 60%. 
And people were saying, why are the birds singing louder? And we were saying, the birds are not singing louder. The background noise is <laughs> dropped, right? Um, and air quality is of a level now that we should be enjoying every single day. The million-dollar question is, when we're all allowed out of our houses, what are we going to do? And, of course, the sad thing or the fearful thing is we're going to go back to doing exactly the same thing. And that's exactly what we've done. And it's leading me into the bigger point about the only way that I believe we're going to enjoy a totally different way of life is when the community of leaders, whether it be corporates, SMEs, in between, are really truly saying, guys, we've been getting this wrong. We've got yeah. to do this differently. And at the moment, you've now got, you know, my town where I used to live in, in, in Essex and in Colchester was always gridlocked at five o'clock on a Friday, right? Well, our post-COVID, it's gridlocked again. So and I'm going, why are people doing this? Then you listen to various, you know, people, whether it be Elon Musk or less, less famous people saying, no, we need to be in the office. We need to be in the office. And, and I'm sitting there going, what, what on earth is going on? And then you listen to people say, oh, I think we can improve well-being and quality of life by reducing from a five-day week to a four-day week. And I'm sitting here saying, you're all away with the fairies. Because whether it's a five-day, a four-day, a three-day, it's constrained function. The moment you constrain, you lose the ability for people to be their best selves. And all you have to do, and it sounds easy, and it is easy if you have the right mindset, is when you agree with the people around you what it is we're going to achieve as an outcome, I don't care how you do it, I don't care when you do it, I don't care where you do it, but we've agreed that's going to be the outcome. You create accountability and you create drive. And this is this is what's been exposed enormously, particularly at the beginning of COVID, it was fascinating. That, that it's exposed bad and lazy leadership, where with everyone in the office at the same time, you actually didn't need to delegate properly, didn't need to set objectives. Everyone was busy. Just opened the laptop and responded to emails. And I, and I could look over your shoulder, check what you're doing. I could nudge you. I could say, oh, by the way, Jeff, just go and do that, will you? And it will happen. When we're remote, you can't do that. And so so the, the businesses and the people that succeeded were the people who weren't lazy leaders to begin with, who actually, as you said, set out what it is we want to do and achieve. I always say that delegation isn't you telling me what to do and me telling you. Delegation is an agreement. If you're going to delegate something to me, we agree the delegation. We agree what's going to be done by when and potentially some elements on how and stuff, but that's it. And then how I do it precisely is, is up to me. And you're quite right. You know, the, the things we will miss it, it are things like the casual conversation. If I bump into you in the corridor, say, oh, oh, just one more thing, Jeff, I forgot to say. So there is, a, there is definitely a need to connect and be together, but you're quite right. To put a constraint and say, we insisted three days, you know, Elon Musk may be a visionary, but I, I wouldn't quote him as a leader. Um, and therefore, a lot of his practices, I, I don't think are, well, whatever, they are what they are. Yeah, yeah, He's yeah, definitely yeah. visionary, no doubt about that. And, and so the danger is, I'm mean, work with business now, they're saying, how do we do it? People don't want to come back in. I, I can't blame them. Because all you're going to do is get them to come back in, have that two-hour rush hour in the morning, two-hour rush hour in the evening. They're still going to open up their laptops and not speak to anybody else and send emails. What's the point? So let's change the office. Let's make an office the space to meet, to relate, to share ideas, to, to, to get to know people, to build a relationship, to make some big decisions. And then how we do the bits in between, well, let's make sure we just do it so that it all happens. And you're quite right. And we're seeing a shift that way. And the businesses that get it, the leaders that get it, will we'll roar away from the old-fashioned ones who insist you've got to sit in the office and look busy because their own incompetence, their own poor leadership and poor delegation. 
they're the people that are losing people, right? Really? Because the people are saying, this is not what I want. And therefore, they're labelling it as a great resignation. I'm saying a great resignation's always been there. What's happened is you've now highlighted it because people have realised what it is they want out of life and they're now going to go get it. And they've realised you can do it another way. And this is the thing that Kobe taught as well, actually, because the world didn't stop. A lot of businesses, I've been involved in lots of businesses, and all the ones I was involved in all did brilliantly. Some were incredible. Even a local restaurant on an island not far from where I live uh, in Limington in the New Forest in the south of England, um, the restaurant couldn't open, so but people could go out in the boats, so they prepared hampers. They were doing 100 hampers a day. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, and that's about pivoting, right? Yeah, that's reimagining, and, and that's, that's a creative mind, and that's a positive mindset and all the things. But coming back to what you just said a little while ago, I'm only doing this because one of the things I love to do is I, I like to talk about stuff that I've learned, not stuff that I guess is going to be right. So one of the things that I did as a, as a thing, you mentioned something there about, yeah, we'll always need to have that chat at the coffee machine. Um, and I've, I have a slightly different view by saying no one's ever enjoyed a chat at a coffee machine. They just didn't think they did. It's something they, they, they don't do and therefore we must miss it. And one of the reasons I say that is that the amount of times I watch people go up to some of the coffee machine and say, hello, John, how was your weekend? Well, actually, what happened was my mum turned up. Sorry, John, I've got a call. Um, uh, I'll catch you later. No authenticity. There was no meaning. There, there was no, yeah, there was no authenticity. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah, what's happened, but what happened in COVID when everyone went remote, um, when everyone sort of said, no, I don't like this because it was unfamiliar territory, but then four months later, everyone said, we absolutely love it. Every manager bar none in my organisation said to me six months later, I know more about my team now than I've known in the yeah, last yeah. five years. Because what happened was they were having, because of the well-being thing, we were keeping in touch, not about have you done your work, but about how are you, how are you coping, how are you worry, are you dealing with the anxiety, et cetera, et cetera. And they were having deep, intimate, one-on-one -on -one conversations. And because it was on Teams or Zoom and it was in front of a PC, you had 100% attention and you were present. Okay, yeah. And essentially, we knew more about our teams and our people than we'd ever known in the five years at the coffee machine, which meant the coffee machine was valueless. It was indeed. But coming back to what you said, the hybrid element, so what we did was we re refitted our offices from a typical conventional, that was very posh and very nice and fancy white desks and big screens everywhere. We ripped it all out and we filled it with couches and bookcases and beanbags, right? And we said, you, you do not come to the office to transact. You do that at home. You come to the office to have fun, be creative, and solve problems. Totally right. And that's the only reason you come to the office. And so the office space has changed. There's a different need for it. And but the casual conversation is that is a key element. But key also, you're looking at each other's screens. You can see what's in the background. You can see what's on people's bookshelves. You can see part of their life. Now, the cat walks across the shoulders. The dog comes in. There's an element of humanity about it as well. If there is. And the kids turn up when you're trying to have a conversation, yeah. and that's okay, right? Perfect. Exactly. Let's be human. We forgot about the humanity. Forcing people to sit in their car for two hours every morning and every evening. That's not human. That's not... Look at the stresses of parents, young or otherwise, where you know the kids are ill, or they can't go to school because the school's shut or whatever. And they go, "Oh my God, I'm stressed now because what we're going to say to my governor." In our world now, you can go into our offices and there's three or four kids there playing on the pool table because their parents have had to bring them in, and that's okay, right? Because at the end of the day, we're only there collaborating. And this is the point again about being human, isn't it? So this compassionate leadership, understanding with positive action. So the schools are shut, so the trains aren't working. But you know what? I understand that. So let's be positive. So rather than beat you up or trying to get you to hide it, let's recognize it and, and be open, take away bias and judgment. It's a reality of life. We have to value family because without family, there's no future for the whole species anyway. But somehow we've created a mechanism which only values productivity. 
it doesn't value family, it doesn't value community, it doesn't value relationships. And, and so we need to change that. I do sense there's a sea change though, Jeff, definitely things are happening. We're not tipping point yet, but things are definitely shifting, without any doubt. It's like everything else. The only thing that influences change of behavior is consequence, right? And if you've got these companies that feel command and control is right or be back in the offices right and they're struggling to get people or they're losing people and they can't replace them, eventually they're going to say, what, what do we do differently? Yeah, well, and then they're yeah. going to start asking, well, who are the companies that are actually employing these people that these people are having to go to and how are they behaving? It's, the sad thing is, is like you've got the early adopters and you've got the laggers. The problem I've, or the concern I've got is I'm just scared by the amount of laggers. The, the laggers will, will, will fall off, you know. I mean, they're, they're, they're dinosaurs, and, and, and it'll it will change. Um, you know, but I also think that there's two elements. So we hear a lot of conversation about the, the leadership has a duty of care of welfare and stuff with the, the the workers, but there's a duty works both ways. They also have a duty, which is to make sure that that they're adding value and doing this sort of stuff. And and the newspapers are full of you know, how. The CEOs are or are not doing this. And when I work with business, I say, well, look, the whole thing is about a relationship and a dialogue and a two-way process. I look after you, you look after me. You know, I look after your family, you help me look after my family, which is actually the bigger family. And so I think we need to create that that two-way, contract's the wrong word. It's just, it's just that recognition. It's just that understanding of, yeah, okay. I'm going to work differently, but I'll tell you what, you and I, Jeff, we've agreed what work's got to be done. We agreed it's got to be done by week Tuesday. I'll make sure it's done uh, and, and we'll honour each other. Yeah, so I call, that a, I call that a contract between two people. And the reality is sometimes things happen that you're out of your control and that's okay, which means you can't do it Tuesday. But what you can't do is tell me on Tuesday you haven't done it. Yeah, exactly. Right? On Friday when you realise you can't do it, you have to renegotiate this contract. <laughs> right? So, um, So we're all aware and we're informed. And I think there's lots of things out there outside our control at the moment. So, um, <laughs> oh, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. But again, coming back to the, the, the Stephen Covey thing, and also back to what we've both been saying at different times, and that is that when you create this environment that says our job is to look after the person on the right and the person on the left before we look after ourselves. The byproduct is those two people will look after you. You've just got to trust in that fact. But it's got to be genuine. It's got to be authentic. So one of the examples we use that's helped me tell this story is we have a thing called Stop the Floor, um, which is once a month in our business where everyone dials in and we have an update on what's happening with the business, the good, the bad, the ugly, all the things that are going on. So everyone's completely involved in a very transparent way, whether it be financial, whether it be new clients, clients lost, whatever. Um, and, we, and we do an update. It's a 40-minute thing um and one of the things we do is pre that actual stop the floor there's a facility we have where you can nominate somebody that's gone the extra mile done something great now it could be they've helped you it could be they helped somebody on the side of, of the road a, a, a car had broken down it could be anything at all right it's just simple recognition and uh, what we used to do is we used to have you know 20 nominations and we just read out who we'd selected was the top three but of course the other 17 never got heard of so what we now do is we do a thing called spin the wheel. So what we do is up comes the wheel and it's got everybody's name on it that has been nominated and everyone gets to see their name before whether they've won or not. And they're already winners. Whether the wheel stops or not, they don't care. They saw their name. And what was fascinating is when we started that, just as we came out of COVID two years ago, and we do it every month now, we have got two thirds of our company, individuals being nominated every single month where people are now going out of their way to help their colleagues and their peers. And when you can create that environment, you become a powerhouse. Yeah, you do. You do. And that's the key thing as well to understand, isn't it? 
which, which is great. Um, you know, and, and I mentioned earlier about the joy of it. Now, that's the title of my next book, The Joy of Leadership, because, you know, it, it is an absolute joy. It's a pleasure. It's a responsibility. I remember when I first met my crew for staying around the world. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's a longer story, but cutting it short, I didn't select them. They came from all walks of life. You know, they weren't professional sailors. Eight of them never sailed before in their life. And the first time wow. we had a big event, a big haul, 300 crew volunteers, 12 skippers around the room. I was one of the captains, one of the skippers. And the organizer for Che Blythe, his whole premise was his attitude over ability. And I 100% believe that. When he announced the last crew, and then the crews migrated towards their captains, when the crew stood in front of me for the very first time, that's when I realized what the first responsibility of leadership is, because they've given you the biggest gift, the ultimate gift, which is their time, their life. And I worked out that my responsibility as a leader is to give them return on that investment. That's the first responsibility. And then think about relationships, think about teams, think about collaboration. It's not just a leader's responsibility, it's everyone's responsibility to give return on the investment made in you by the people around you. And then, yeah, again, we just, we just end up in a different place because you're thinking differently. And, and then it's, you know, it's really exciting and a real joy. And that's how you wake up. And there's, there's, there's a lovely phrase I use as well. The word, you know, the word enjoy um, has two meanings. You know, you can enjoy something or are you in joy? Enjoy. Yeah, <laughs> <Right>? yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and that's, about a, that's about a mindset. And that mindset is the most powerful thing on the planet. Um, listen, Manly, this is, we have gone off on a tangent, but what a fantastic discussion. We're going to wrap it up now. Um, I guess one of the things, and of course, from your experience, this is going to be a bit of a challenging question, which I love, uh, because you can only say one thing. So if there was one thing, what would you say you were most grateful for? Gosh, actually, it's not that hard. I'm, I'm most grateful for the love of the people around me. Great. Because that's what energizes, all right? It is, and you, I, you know, you feel honoured for that, and you know, it's, uh, it's a beautiful feeling that by by whatever I've done, I've earned that love, I've earned that trust, whatever it would be, um, and they've decided to give it to me, um, and that's uh, God, that's a real so much I'm grateful for, of course, but that is such a such a joy and a pleasure. And then finally, if there was one message based upon the subject matter we've been talking about for those that might be interested in the content and the viewpoints. If there was one message you would want to end this on, what would that message be? Enjoy the journey. Definitely. Sometimes we wonder, we're worried too much about where we're going. But if we just stop and enjoy the journey, enjoy the moment, stick to the path, which is our path, you know, stick to your core values uh, and just enjoy. Enjoy the moment. Brilliant. Well, Manly, it's been an absolute joy. Um, I thank you so much for your time. I thank you for the real deep discussion and debate, which I've enjoyed every minute of. Hopefully, uh, it'll bring some joy and inspiration, some golden nuggets to some others. Um, and I hope at some point in the future, our paths will cross again. Jeff, it's been a real pleasure. And yeah, let's set an intent out there to make sure that our paths do cross, because that'd be a good thing. <laughs> fantastic, fantastic. Cheers, Manly. Keep well. Well, a big thank you to Manly for that. Um, what an incredible, incredible discussion. Normally we keep these podcasts to 20 or 30 minutes, but I, I, couldn't, I couldn't stop the conversation. I was embroiled in this incredible insight, this incredible alignment of the new type of leadership, the compassionate leader um, that Manly talks about so passionately. And more importantly, by his own learnings and his own experiences uh, in, in all areas, you know, not only just the Navy, but um, as he says, you know, huge chunks of his understanding of compassionate leadership 
was when you're trying to lead and skipper you know, a huge lot, a, a huge yacht across you know, the most violent of, of oceans with unskilled and inexperienced crew. Leadership is where you, know, you bring that together because if you've got people that have the right attitude and the right intent and they can manage the environment, enjoy the environment in which they're operating, these people can become superhuman and invariably they do. And leadership of today, especially when you look at the old command and control style and some of the leadership that are still stuck back in the 70s and the 80s, could learn an awful lot from the new type of leadership because they're missing out on having people around them that will push those boundaries, that will reach for the stars. Not because they're doing it for you, but because they're doing it to make a difference. Compassionate leaders are the ones that will have unstoppable workforces. They will have unstoppable groups of people that know no boundaries, which is why the new type of leadership that was accelerated during COVID is going to be game-changing, not only in terms of um, commerce and revenue and, and growth, it's going to be game-changing in terms of the ecosystem, of saving the planet, because people are desperate for purpose. And great leaders and great leadership will help those people find that purpose. And then they're unstoppable. I'm Jeff Dewing, author of the best-selling book, Doing the Opposite, and CEO of CloudFM. You can also find out more about this podcast and my incredible guests at podcast.cloudfmgroup.com. And finally, a big thank you to my team, Nicola Crawshaw, Thinking Hat PR, and of course, my production team, What Goes On Media, who have helped me launch this incredible new season that is creating a huge amount of head turning. I hope you enjoy and please feel free to listen back to previous podcasts that again are just simply inspirational. Thanks for listening.